You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Today on Preaching Source, we have the Dean of Southwestern's School of Preaching, Dr. David Allen, and he's also one of the authors of the book, Text-Driven Preaching. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Well, thank you, Dr. McCarty. A pleasure to be here. Well, now, uh, I mentioned you are the author, one of the authors of Text-Driven Preaching, and that leads to our first question, and and this is really a question about uh, the process of preparation. I guarantee you that any pastor listening to Preaching Source today, this is their main question is, well, how do I do this? And in your chapter in Text-Driven Preaching, you write about a 12-step process in the preparation of a text-driven sermon. So uh, here's the money question for all of our pastors. How do we actually do this? Can you walk us through that process, please? Well, I'd be delighted to do that. I guess now for about 30 years, I have been in my own preaching ministry using a particular methodology of going about doing sermon preparation. Now, in addition to that, I have also been teaching that methodology in the classroom Uh, for about the same number of years, roughly 30 years. So I've taught this over and over to many students. So I do know that this may not be the only way to do sermon preparation. There are probably many ways to skin the cat. But I do know that this is one way that actually works and that results in a text-driven sermon. And so I wrote about this, as you mentioned, in the book Text-Driven Preaching, subtitled God's Word at the Heart of Every Sermon. And the chapter title, which begins, by the way, on page 101 in that book, is How to Prepare a Text-Driven Sermon. And so let me just walk you through those steps. You've asked about that, and I'll try not to go into too much detail. The, the book, uh, the chapter in the book will explain what needs to be explained in detail. But basically, my steps are these. Number one, when you are in the study and beginning to work on your text for the next Sunday, your sermon, You've got to do uh, the process. You've got to go through the process of exegesis. You've got to go through the process of text analysis. And in order to do that, I would say, number one, you need to begin at the paragraph level. Begin at the paragraph level of the discourse of the text, and then in your study, move down toward the sentence level, the clause level, the word level, uh, all the way down. So many preachers reverse that. They'll, they'll take a text. They'll say, well, I'm going to preach on, oh, I'm going to preach on 1 John 2, 15 through 17 next Sunday. And uh, they read their text and they'll find a word in there that jumps out at them, you know. And they'll say, ooh, ooh, I've got to do a word study on this word. And so they pull out their word study tool. And the first thing they do, they start looking at an individual tree before they have looked at the forest. And the wiser uh, way to go about it is to start large and work small. Start larger at the larger level, the full paragraph level, and then work your way down to the sentence, the clause, uh, the phrase, and the word. Some of the things you do, some of the uh, intermittent steps in this large number one uh, step is uh, you want to determine the paragraph boundary in your text, and you want to work your way through that. You want to read through that paragraph several times. You want to determine the genre of that paragraph. Prepare maybe a rough translation from Hebrew or Greek if you've had the languages. And you want to just uh, take a look at the bigger picture. You want to begin at the paragraph level. 
You want to look at what's going on. Look at the big picture. That would be step number one. And, of course, you're making notes and jotting down things that will become a part of your of your sermon that will be woven into the actual fabric of the sermon once you write things out. But I would say step number one, begin at the paragraph level and then move your way down to the sentence, clause, phrase, and word level. So then number two, step two, would be to analyze the sentences and the clauses within that paragraph. Once you've done the larger unit, looked at the relationships within the larger units, then let's analyze the sentences and clauses. And in the process here, as a part of this step, you want to identify all your key verbs. You want to parse those verbs, make sure you understand what their tense, voice, and mood is. You want to identify the sentences in that paragraph. Now, I would suggest you do this from the Greek text. If you're, let's just use as our example, a Greek text. Uh, take, for example, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And uh, you will discover that there are three sentences in the Greek text there. There are, in most English translations, there are four sentences that are, that are used to translate but there are actually three sentences in the Greek text. You want to identify those sentences. You want to identify the independent clauses and the subordinate clauses. You want to make notes on all this. You want to look at the grammatical relationships uh, between those clauses. And then you want to think through how do those sentences relate to one another? Which of those sentences is the mainline information and in which conveys support or secondary, or subordinate information. That's a very important part of sermon preparation for text-driven preaching because the author has encoded the most important material using main verbs and sentences, and then subordinate clauses are going to be modifiers, and that is secondary information. Good text-driven preaching is going to make major and magnify what the author majors on and magnifies in terms of the structure of the text, looking at the main verbs, the main sentences, main clauses, and then looking at what is subordinate to that, and then the structure of the text is going to become the framework for the structure of the sermon. That's crucial uh, for good uh, text-driven preaching. So step number two is you want to analyze those sentences and those clauses. Step number three, you want to move down to the phrase level. Look at the key phrases that are in your text, especially prepositional phrases. And if you've had Greek, you want to look especially at what we would call the genitive phrases in the Greek text, the phrases that wind up with the English uh, preposition of. For example, uh, you, you think about the phrase, the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a phrase, for example, that occurs in uh, Revelation. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that phrase is ambiguous out of context, and even in context, it actually can mean one of two things. It can mean the preaching about Jesus, such that Jesus is the content of the preaching, or it can mean the preaching which Jesus does. It's Jesus who does the preaching. And so phrasal analysis, especially of those kinds of phrases, are crucial to a proper interpretation. And so you're going to spend some time looking at the key phrases and determining how those phrases, uh, what those phrases mean and how they are used by an author. So step number three, analyze the key phrases. Step number four, now you're ready to go to the words. You actually do key word studies of significant words. Note things in your text like lexical repetition. 
words that occur more than one time, or words that appear in the same semantic domain. They may not be the exact same word, but words that are synonyms uh, that you find, and so you get this key theme that's uh, developed because of the words. You want to take a careful look and do word studies. You know, for example, if you're preaching on 1 John uh, 2, 1 and 2, uh, you see the word propitiation in your text. Well, there's an, a word that immediately demands a word study. What in the world does that mean? In your preaching, you've got to carefully explain that to the people. And so that would be a key word in the Greek text, uh, but in the English translation, propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That's a, that's a word that would need a careful word study. And you would need to use the appropriate tools for that, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about tools maybe a little bit later. So step four is do those word studies. Step number five, do comparative translation work. Now, I'm a firm believer in looking at different translations of your text to see how uh, they handle the text. I think that's a wise thing. It checks your own exegesis, but it also gives you ideas on how to preach that text when you uh, are preaching, one of the things that you want to do, one of the things you don't want to do is uh, become redundant and use the same words and phrases over and over. Uh, that creates a boredom factor. You want to learn how to say the same thing in different ways. And this is where your comparative translation work uh, comes into play. And not only translations, but I would say look at the paraphrases. And not only look at Bible translations, that's the first order of business, but then check out some of these paraphrases. For example, I look at, in my sermon, after I get through the exegesis process and I get ready to write my sermon, I start looking at the paraphrases like Eugene Peterson's The Message. And I look at how he renders things, and I get marvelous ideas on how to say something, how to wordsmith something. You know, one of my favorite texts is Psalm 5-3. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. It's very interesting how Peterson renders that text. Uh, he says something to the effect of, well, you know, here I am again, you know, Lord, at it this morning. Uh, you know, I'm bringing my prayer to you. I'm laying out the pieces of my life on your altar and waiting for your fire to fall. Now that communicates, but it's also somewhat of an accurate paraphrase because when the, in the actual text, when the author writes, uh, in the morning, O Lord, David writes, uh, I will order my prayer to you. That's the word in Hebrew that was used to describe the priest gathering the wood for the altar burnt offering early in the morning and then coming and arranging that wood in Boy Scout fashion for the fire there, not just throwing it on there. And so the translation in English, order, is actually a good translation. And Peterson is aware of that, the background of that word, and he's rendering that, I'm laying out the pieces of my life on your altar and waiting for your fire to fall. It's a powerful word picture. It's very useful in preaching. And that's, of course, what we're about in preaching is learning how to turn the ear into an eye. And so I would suggest do comparative translation work. Now you say to me, well, David, what about commentaries? We, you haven't talked about them yet. Well, now we're about to. That's step number six. You consult the commentaries. Many preachers make the mistake, Dr. McCarty, of running to commentaries too quickly. 
they'll sit down in their study on Monday morning. They're going to write, prepare their sermon. They're going to study and prepare a sermon for next Sunday. And what do they do? Oh, I pull three commentaries off my shelf and start reading. Wrong. Don't do that. That's not the best way to go about it. There is a place for commentaries, but that's step number six. And then I would say step number seven is you're ready to make a diagram of your paragraph, maybe a block diagram or a syntactical diagram. You want to make sure now that you've done all of this spade work that you're, you're clear on the structure of your text because text-driven preaching is going to allow the structure of the text to inform and drive the structure of the sermon. So you want to do some form of diagramming there. Then step eight, go ahead and develop your outline from all of that exegetical data. Develop that exegetical outline. That's step number eight. Step number nine is then convert that to a homiletical outline. I like to call that a communication outline. It's based on the exegetical study. It's based on the structure of the text. But now you want to reword it. You want to put it down in language that everybody can understand. You want to make it uh, practical in your wording. And this is where you're developing your communication outline, something that will really communicate clearly to the people when you are preaching. And once you do that, step number 10 now is you're ready to actually write out the body of the sermon. And when I say write it out, I mean anything from writing it out word for word, which some preachers do, to writing it out in sh more short form with notes, which is more of what I do. But at any rate, you're prepared to write out the sermon body. This is where you're going to be focusing on explaining the text, illustrating the text, and applying the text. And that's step number 10. You write out the body of the sermon. Step number 11 you write out the introduction and conclusion of the sermon. You always want to wait and do your introduction last after you've written the body. Then you'll know what you want, how you want to go about introducing it. So I don't write introductions first. I write my sermon first. And then I come back and write usually my introduction last. And that's step number 11. And then finally, step number 12. Think through the delivery issues. How will you say now what you have prepared for your sermon. Remember, it's, it's uh, not a song until it's sung. It's not a bell until it's rung. And it's not a sermon until it's preached. So you want to think through that final step, delivery issues. How am I going to preach this? Now, this 12, these 12 steps, Dr. McCarty, I've used for years, not only in teaching, but in my own preaching. And if, you, if, I, can, if I can get a preacher to do these 12 things. It sounds like a lot. It sounds overbearing at first, but if I can get them to do these 12 things, they will produce in the pulpit text-driven sermons that will feed the people and that will reflect carefully the meaning of the text. Dr. Allen, that is a thorough process, and it, it does uh, sound like a lot. Uh, so let me ask you, how, how many hours a week does this take, or uh, how many hours a, a week should a pastor spend in this kind of preparation? And I'm mindful of the fact that you're not just a professor of preaching, but you you had 26 years in the uh, pastoral ministry, so you know what the week of a busy pastor is like. Uh, so how uh, how long does this take to do this? How do you work this into the the average life and work of a busy pastor? You know, that may be the uh, m single most 
often asked question I get when I go out and do uh, preaching workshops as well as when I teach preaching courses here at Southwestern. And it's an important question, but unfortunately, it's a question that really can't be given a definitive answer, uh, though I will make an effort at stab at it. But I do believe that, that what you do as a pastor, you're going to wear many hats and do many things, but there is nothing you will do that is more significant and more important than standing up there behind that pulpit or on the podium or whatever you're using to preach from every Sunday, that is the most significant part of your ministry week by week where you are feeding the people the Word of God. Therefore, it deserves the majority of your time. So how much time should one spend in sermon preparation? As much as you can. It would be difficult to spend too much, but you certainly need to spend as much as you can. So I would suggest that if at all possible, it would be healthy and good to spend anywhere between 12 and 20 hours a week uh, in sermon preparation for that that, uh, Sunday morning message. I think that's crucial to do. I think if you follow these steps, if you do the exegesis that needs to be done, carefully think through the writing of the sermon, you've done broad reading in other areas uh, that uh, you're constantly reading in order to feed your own soul and in order to come up with uh, good ways to express the meaning of the text. These are the kinds of things that do take time, and you have to discipline yourself to do it. And uh, th- there's, n- there's no greater payoff, though, than doing it, spending that time 12 to, tw- I would say, 12 to 20 hours a week. Now, busy pastor, 100 things will happen. I mean, you know, you're going to have to put out this fire over here and run over there and put out that fire, and things happen during the week. And if, you're, if you have a family, you have to take care of your wife and children. There are ball games to attend and, you know, homework to do and time with ch- children and time with your wife. Uh, you shouldn't take away from those times, uh, but you should make an effort to give many hours during the week. I would say 12 to 20 would be a good rule of thumb for preparing a good text-driven sermon. All right. Well, Dr. Allen, you've been teaching, preaching, and preaching for a long time. All right. Now, surely you have got some nugget or two, uh, some secret or special insight uh, that uh, would be especially valuable to help busy pastors do this. So, so what uh, what are some of the uh, the valuable insights or or even pitfalls to avoid uh, in doing this process of uh, preparing to preach? <laughs> well, well, I would say first of all, in terms of if I've learned anything, I would say read widely. Uh, the most one of the most important things that a pastor can do is read broadly and widely. One of the key reasons for Charles Spurgeon's success in ministry was he was an avid and voracious reader. And he read not just theological material, but he read all kinds of things, history, uh, nature, science-type works, all kinds of things he read and he utilized in his own preaching. Francis Bacon once said, reading makes a broad man and writing makes an exact man. And I would say that reading is very important for the pastor uh, to become the pastor scholar, the person who is able to put together week-by-week sermons. In order to do that, you need to read widely. I would suggest that. I would say, number two, learn to cut. Learn how to be like a movie editor 
who goes in there from all of the film that's been shot, and it's all so grand and wonderful, and you want to get it all in there, but the worst thing you can do is cram it all in. What you have to do, and I think one of the hardest things to do, and one of the most important disciplines in preaching is learn what material to cut. It takes a lot more work to write a 25 to 30 minute sermon and preach it than it does to write a 50 minute sermon and preach it. Learning to cut is so vital. And so I would suggest uh, that. I would also say that there's a world of difference between written and spoken discourse. We write one way, but we don't preach like we write, or at least we shouldn't. Written discourse will make use of longer sentences and that kind of thing. But in spoken discourse, we should use shorter sentences, easy words, uh, as many uh, small syllable words as possible, and then carefully think through how to string that together. Learn to be a wordsmith. We deal in words, friends, so learn how to be a wordsmith and learn how to use language well. Write that sermon with the ear in mind. A good preacher seeks to turn the ear into an eye. And so you want to write that sermon out or the notes for it in such a way that that you're going to you want it to be heard how people will hear it so you want to make all, use of all the key communication and rhetorical techniques that will make that delivery the best that it can possibly uh, be the, the some of the you know some of the pitfalls many of the pitfalls of preaching can be avoided if if we will learn to do these three things Dr. Allen, what are some of the essential tools that, that you use in this process? Well, you've got to have a good Bible, a really good translation there. In fact, I would use several, as I mentioned, and then add in those paraphrases. Get those paraphrases and use them as well. Have those at hand. You need uh, a good lexicon. You need a good Hebrew and Greek lexicon so you can work in the original languages. You also need a good concordance, a good concordance, both Greek and, and English. And then you need to utilize your grammar tools in Greek that you've uh, that you uh, maybe used in seminary. If you've had the grammar, if you've had Greek and Hebrew, you want to have some of those on hand so you can uh, make sure you refresh yourself on now what are my key participial uses and so forth. And the grammar key grammar tools will help you with that. You want to have theological dictionaries, one or two really good theological dictionaries at hand. So when you need to look up those words like propitiation or, or even words that are common, grace, uh, hope, love, you know, you need a good theological dictionary that will t tell you uh, how these words are used in context in Scripture and uh, that will help you in the writing of your sermon. Uh, I would say then you need some some basic English tools as well. You need a good English dictionary. Learning how to look up words and uh, knowing their meaning, their etymology, their use. Uh, you need a good English dictionary close at hand. You need a, a good thesaurus. You need a good uh, thesaurus that will help you find the right synonym, the right word, or the right antonym, whatever you're looking for. Uh, in uh, the expression of that sermon. I think those tools are very helpful. Work on your English grammar. So I keep an English grammar and composition book handy so that I constantly refer to that. I want to make sure uh, that I use the proper verbs and uh, that I use 
have the the right usage of verbs and that that kind of thing, connections with other words. And so I use uh, what's often called a hard brace. Harcourt and Brace publishes that English Grammar and Composition. Uh, they've, it's been through multiple editions through the years. I keep one close at hand. And I think these are very important tools that are used. Now, one other thing I would suggest is after you write your sermon, uh, go back and read other sermons throughout church history on your text. So uh, look at what other preachers have, have written or preached and, and listen to contemporary sermons as well. But don't do that at the beginning. Uh, you'll, you'll wind up preaching other people's stuff. But rather, these are the kinds of tools that I think will be very helpful in sermon preparation. Dr. Allen, do you have any final word on, on this subject today for our Preaching Source listeners? Well, I guess if I were to think of something that I would hope would be helpful to everybody, I would say this. Text-driven preaching means that you're going, to, you're going to take a text of Scripture in its context, and you're going to stay with that text and develop it in your preaching. And I would say, stay with your text. Learn how to be like Maverick in Top Gun. You know, Tom Cruise was Maverick. He was a, a naval, naval aviator, and, uh, and he was just that, a Maverick. Uh, he was a hotshot naval aviator. And early on in training there at Miramar, uh, he doesn't stay with his wingman. And so when they land and they go through their evaluation with the instructor, instructor he gets reamed out for uh, not staying with his wingman. And later on in the movie toward the end, when they get called out, there's an incident over the Indian Ocean and there are some Russian MiGs there. And so Maverick and his rear are out and, of course, Iceman and his rear. And when they get out there, they discover that uh, they're not two Russian MiGs, they're four. So it's four on two. And one of those MiGs gets on Mav's tail and his rear says, Mav, we want to have to bug out. You know, he's locking on to us, locking missiles on. And if you listen carefully or watch carefully in the movie, Mav says not once but twice, he says, I'm not leaving my wingman. I'm not leaving my wingman. He's learned his lesson of what it takes to engage in naval aviation. And so I teach my students, the last thing you do after the special music on Sunday, you're walking up to that pulpit, you breathe the last prayer for the filling of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You walk up there, open your Bible, read your text, and you say to yourself, I'm not leaving my text. I'm not leaving my text. You take that text, you develop that text, you stay with that text. Don't bring in 10 and 15 other verses to proof text your text. That's a common thing that many preachers, including many well-known preachers, do that, but that will actually dilute what you're doing. So if I could say anything, I would say walk up there, and say to yourself, I'm not leaving my text. Uh, Dr. Allen, that's a great word. Thank you for being with us today on Preaching Source. Thank you, Dr. McCarty. It's been my pleasure.